to another Philanthropy Plugged In podcast, a series exploring the intersection of technology, gender, and giving. My name is Jeannie Sager, and I'm the director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute and your host for this podcast series. Thank you for joining us. We are living in interesting times. The COVID-19 crisis has affected everyone's lives. Nonprofits are pivoting from in-person events, whether they are the annual fundraising gala or board meetings. We have lived through uncertain times before. The many stories of abundant generosity that are being shared, virtually of course, are gratifying. In times of adversity, people step up to help. And women tend to step up more than men. Research shows that during the Great Recession of 2008 to 2009, women were extraordinarily generous. The Lilly Family School of Philanthropy research shows that women were more likely than men to donate to disaster aid efforts in 2017 and 2018. Then, 40% of women versus 33% of men donated to disaster aid. We've also heard stories of how women have pivoted to leverage technology to connect, from book groups and board meetings to alumni gatherings which started with a meditation exercise. Women continue to find creative ways to create community and engage in social good. In today's episode, our guest, Elizabeth Ziegler, president and CEO of Graham Pelton, will be our guide as we reimagine fundraising with a special focus on strategies to engage women. Elizabeth, welcome to Philanthropy Plugged In. Um, Would you please share with our listeners a little bit more about you and your work? Thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, I am the president and CEO of Graham Pelton. We're a global fundraising consulting firm. And so we work with all kinds of organizations in the nonprofit sector. My background prior to joining Graham Pelton was that I was a fundraiser in the higher education sector. I worked at a small liberal arts college. I worked at a larger uh, private university in New York City. And I fell into this entire career because I was a -a phone-a-thon caller in college. had no idea that this was actually a thing, a job. And the woman who led that program called me at some point and said, I'm not coming back from maternity leave. I think you should apply for the position. And I went and I did my research and I went to different associations and I learned about this career called development and lo and behold, I got the job. So that's how it all started. So we have, we share that um, in our backgrounds. I used to, one of my first jobs was running the phone-a-thon at my um, alma mater. Um, So all great things lead from that, <laughs> that experience. So that's wonderful. Um, so let's just dive right in, Elizabeth. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit with us today about how some of your clients have used technology uh, to adapt to the new landscape? Sure. And many of our clients are taking steps in the direction of short-term solutions through technology, while at the same time exploring the longer-term solutions. And I think we're going to get more to that topic. But I've seen instances where, uh, for example, a dean of a law school has been communicating regularly by video and in a way that didn't 
at first seem comfortable to her, uh, but she is very skilled at it, and she is giving her community a glimpse into her life. And so building community in ways and using technology in ways that humanize the person, the leader who is communicating. Uh, we've seen Zoom, everybody is on Zoom overload now, right? I mean, so it's pretty obvious, but we've seen our clients pivot quickly to having Zoom meetings to cultivate and solicit potential donors during this time. And they've done so successfully. And then looking at how other clients have been creative on their social media platforms, again, to, to build community. So um, some examples include, I've seen schools create videos, athletic teams that are obviously distanced and separate, but somehow they video themselves individually and splice it together into these very creative videos. So a softball player is throwing a softball and then the next person catches it and so on throughout the entire team. Mm -hmm. I've seen virtual spirit days. I've seen a virtual talent show that we actually streamlined in my house. Uh, one night, my husband hooked up the computer and we watched this talent show on our television. And it was so exciting to see something and be part of the community when we were distanced. Yeah. Yeah, those are great examples. I just recently watched my um, my my the orchestra in my kids' school. They put together um, a piece, and they were each playing individually, and they came together. and I thought that was wonderful. So, as you know, WPI um, focuses on women's philanthropy, and in particular, growing women's philanthropy. and And for more than a decade, um, our research has established some gender differences in giving. Um, women are more likely to give than men and give more than men. Women tend to spread out their giving, um, giving smaller gifts to a larger number of organizations. And women are more likely than men to support women's and girls' causes. Women Give 2020, our newest report, found that these patterns are consistent both in, the, in online giving as well. So can you share a little bit with our listeners does this study resonate with your experiences? And what are some of the takeaways from the study as we reimagine fundraising um, and, and, and continue that conversation? Well, at Graham Pelton, we're so grateful for the research that you do put out and it's central to our work. We look at the research and then we, we can bring it to life with our clients and we can guide them in ways that allow them to transform their fundraising, whether it's a high volume of smaller level donors or women who are giving in the eight figures. And mm -hmm. so it does resonate with us as a firm. And I was not surprised to learn that online giving from women is consistent with their other types of, of giving. And when we think about reimagining fundraising, I feel, I don't know, I feel like at Graham Pelton, we've started to do that with our clients as they are thinking about women mm -hmm. and approaching women in terms of giving. And we have seen women, particularly among the independent school sector, mm -hmm. where the schools have asked for and received eight-figure gifts and 
have been able to promote those gifts in the, in the appropriate ways to build community among women donors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I've seen it having also been in the independent school space, um, that idea of expanding the definition of philanthropy um, is important in approaching women and giving because um, they don't see themselves naturally as large donors. Um, but when we ask them to equate the time that they spend in terms of volunteerism at their at their child's school or the work that they do, and they make that translation to what would that what is that what is that opportunity cost and what is that investment? It triggers something in them to say, "Oh my gosh, yes, this is this is important to me." Well, I'm sure that you've seen that as well. It's so true. And sometimes when we're working with clients where I can think of a time where I was moderating a panel and mm -hmm. the topic was on women giving. And the first question I asked the panelists was, how do you define philanthropy? Yeah. And the four panelists had four different answers. Mm -hmm. And it, it was so interesting, but we could level set with that question so that as we moved through the conversation, there was a, an understanding that was yeah. mutual. And when we talk about philanthropy at Graham Pelton, you know, behind our closed doors, you, you would hear us say things like, everybody is a philanthropist. Right. Mm -hmm. Philanthropy means goodwill to the human race. It doesn't mean eight-figure gifts only. Mm -hmm. it, it could be opening a door for somebody. It can, in these days, it can be buying groceries for your neighbor. Um, that's philanthropy. That's goodwill to the human race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you think about your clients, I'm sure that you, they come in all shapes and sizes. And so how might smaller organizations with fewer staff and fewer resources adapt to this new fundraising landscape and leverage technology um, for them to, to do good? It's such a good question. And it's an interesting one to think about in the the way nonprofits may be able to come together and pool their resources. I was speaking to uh, an organization that's not a client of ours yesterday, and I heard about four organizations that are coming together mm -hmm. in order to make an appeal and ask. And so the collective unit having more power and more reach than the units by themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking through protocols and what would that look like? How would the ask amounts be determined and who would receive the gifts and how would the gifts be credited and all kinds of different aspects that are down in the weeds. But it was, it's interesting to see how they're exploring that sort of partnership mm -hmm. and explore it in a way that's actually donor centric. And so being able to have more of a reach and be able to be thoughtful about the donor. The donor will receive one transparent ask versus four or five asks. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also talked about the short-term implications and then the longer-term implications. How should this type of partnership be handled at this time so that in the longer term, it has equal benefit that it, mm -hmm. has, you know, that it would have in the short term? Yeah, um, you know, as our listeners, uh, 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 I want to remind our listeners that we're, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, too, um, have been hearing stories about nonprofits um, and other organizations really pulling together 
to serve their community. And, and like you said, getting out of the weeds about, you know, who gets the credit and how, but really trying to make it easy for the donor to um, be able to respond immediately um, and feel like they're doing something um, during this very difficult time. And, and that's going to say a lot about that organization um, moving forward um, and those organizations, I should say, um, who are able to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of, so, you know, when we talk about this immediate response um, and some of the examples that you're seeing um, and some of the recommendations you're making for smaller organizations, we're talking, you know, that's kind of focusing on smaller level gifts. One of the things that's happening now, as you um, know and you're experiencing, is that um, fundraisers are getting more comfortable with the idea of making larger asks um, via technology um, and perhaps maybe by phone or by Zoom, um, when uh, traditionally that has been so much more of an um, in-person, high-touch experience. what do we want to think about when we're making a, this transition from a more traditional in-person um, conversation uh, to using and leveraging technology um, to make sure that we can still um, do that major gift work? Mm-hmm. It's an important question because there's different preparation that should take place uh, for a virtual meeting versus an in-person meeting. And I'll start by saying we have clients that are in real time finding success, asking for gifts by phone, by Zoom, by FaceTime. I like to talk about my parents who are 81 and 84, and they they have a hard time navigating Zoom, but they sure do know how to use FaceTime and <laughs> talk to their grandchildren. So finding the medium that is most comfortable for the recipient of that ask is important. Preparing in advance, and I'll tell you a short story. We had a client call one of our consultants uh, last week or the week before, and the director of development said, we had a meeting with a couple, it was a couple, um, and at the end of it, the wife said, this is very helpful information. We will talk to our financial advisor and we'll get back in touch with you. So naturally, The director of development said to my colleague, I think we lost an opportunity. We didn't ask for a specific amount. What should we do? And we talked about what to do for for that couple. But then we also said, why don't we in advance create a checklist of criteria? And if the meeting ticks the boxes on the checklist, that there's the green light to move ahead. So... Sometimes when you're with someone face-to-face and you're sitting next to them, there are nonverbal cues. You can even tap somebody under the the table. You don't have that opportunity to do that. There can be nonverbal cues on Zoom, but they're more difficult to convey. And so if in advance there's an agreement on criteria, then that will allow the person, one of the people on the phone or Zoom, to give the go-ahead and move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an, a client right now that is an, is accelerating an eight-figure ask of a woman who's single, and because of the the situation that's happening at the client, there's greater reason to reach out to her and to ask her for mm-hmm. a gift. 
And there have already been a couple of steps thus far. Of course, the ask is not the first communication. And, and so there have been conversations along the way where she has asked, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And the client's building up to answering that question. And that mm-hmm. will be with a significant ask. And if they receive it, or maybe I should use positive, when they receive that gift, <laughs> uh, that is going to be the biggest gift in their in their history uh, and transformative for them. And done by, and done by Zoom or some sort of uh, yeah, virtual platform. Some sort of virtual platform. That's Absolutely. wonderful. Do, would you recommend um, um, if there's multiple people kind of practicing and role-playing on the Zoom um, as, a, as a way of getting comfortable with the medium? So that's another great question because I would say yes, some people get uncomfortable with role play, but mm-hmm. if not role playing literally, mm-hmm. we would call it let's run through the scenarios, yeah. the what ifs. What yeah. if she says that? What if she says this? What if we mm-hmm. hear the following and be able to anticipate and think through and mm-hmm. certainly have roles for different people to play? That no one should be scripted by any means, but for there to be clarity on what the board chair would say versus the vice president versus, you know, a president, whoever the players are in the meeting, mm-hmm. uh, that's important. And I would add that communicating in advance so that the person who's on the receiving end is not completely surprised by the topic of the conversation <laughs> because we don't want to make our constituents, our community members feel uncomfortable. So Mm -hmm. there should be some communication in advance um, that allows them to understand the purpose of the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. Um, So, so realizing that we are still early in to um, transitioning through this pandemic, based on lessons learned from fundraising and past pandemics and what we're kind of starting to see now, to what extent will you recommend organizations continuing to use technology to engage donors and in particular looking at women donors? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I guess in other words, are there new skills that we've all learned um, that are going to be part of these of strategies moving forward uh, as we, as we look at fundraising in the future? From my perspective, the answer is yes. And the conversation that I'm having with my colleagues right now is where is the space, the right space to be creative and different and reimagine, as you say, and where do we need to refocus on the basics, right? We don't need to be creative for creativity's sake. And so when I think about women in giving and I I go back to my earliest days of working with women donors. I was at the university in New York City and I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was fortunate enough to work with the first female graduates of the university. They graduated in uh, 1968 and I was able to, to listen to their stories. I'll come back to today with technology, but I was, I could listen to their stories and realized that they, they're special and they had something different to say. And there was also a pride uh, f- around 
their being accepted at this university because actually their admission standards were higher mm -hmm. than the men's admission standards. So, but anyway, um, <laughs> you fast forward and you think about the different kinds of technology. When I first started in my career, I thought it was sophisticated to pack a box of letters and envelopes and stamps and pens and send them to the volunteers. <laughs> and now you have things like DocuSign and all kinds of other technology platforms that allow us to be more efficient. I think what this pandemic can do for women in giving is accelerate the rate at which women were and are achieving more parity, not only when it comes to earning income and controlling wealth and the millionaires, all the pieces of data that you put out. And I think what recently struck me was the percentage of millennial women millionaires who've created their own wealth, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a different tide that's coming. There's a different way that women are earning their wealth. And those that earn it are probably more likely to feel comfortable giving it away because they've earned it. And there could be some confidence that they can earn it again or protect it and so on. And when we think about women in particular and women crave, we, we crave community. We crave being connected and we crave being together. And what will come out of this, I predict, is that organizations are going to, will become more proficient at skillfully building communities on virtual platforms so that coming together is not always the requirement. That's great. So I, um, I'm not going to let you off the hook um, for future thinking. So my, my final question for our conversation today um, is still on that idea of reimagining fundraising, but I'm going to let you loose. I'm not, go I'm not going to restrict you to uh, technology. Um, so as you think about, as, as we keep saying, reimagine fundraising for the next five or five years or so, do you have any uh, ideas or steps that you recommend our organizations, our listeners um, take to unleash more generosity for all of our institutions? My first answer, particularly in this time period that we're experiencing right now, is to be bold. Do not be risk averse. This is not the time to be risk averse. This is not the time to step back from communicating about our missions. This is the time to move forward boldly. I was talking to one uh, organization a few days ago and the board chair asked me, how should we be communicating? And that was my answer. And then she said, as a woman, some of the people in our community are saying that we should be raising money for frontline responders. How do you feel about that? I said, I have a very firm opinion about that. Absolutely not. That's not what you do. Your mission is to educate students. Stick with your mission. And for anyone out there during this period of time who's doing some sort of comparative analysis, my mission isn't as worthy as that mission and so on, that's nonsense. You have an important mission you need to boldly represent it and unapologetically ask for support. You do it with sensitivity and thoughtfulness 
but you should be unapologetic about it. And you shouldn't be comparing your mission to say a healthcare institution or a food bank or a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We all represent our missions with passion and with conviction, and that should not subside at this period of time. Because if fundraisers slow down their activity, if we're not still cultivating and if we're not still asking, donors will still give, but they're gonna give elsewhere. They're not gonna give to you. And we saw that in 2009 and 10, the clients that slowed down took years to catch up. The clients that move forward with confidence, move forward with clarity, move forward with conviction, they met their goals and they developed greater levels of trust and loyalty among their communities. I, I, I can't think of better advice um, for our listeners today, Elizabeth. Um, there's so many wonderful missions that deserve support um, in our country and together we can do good. I wanna thank you and Graham Pelton again for always being so supportive of WPI and our work. Um, thank you for your time today. And I look forward to being bold together um, with you and, um, and partnerships in the future. This episode is part of WPI's Philanthropy Plugged In podcast series, exploring ideas around technology, gender, and giving. Please check out our digital hub at wpisymp.iupui.edu for more information about all our activities and podcasts. For Philanthropy Plugged In, I'm Jeannie Sager. Thank you for listening. Philanthropy Plugged In is a production of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. Music is provided by Localize.